0: Hello. (laughs) Welcome to Women in the Word. You're awake out there. I love that. I am too. I am so glad to be here. My name is Vanita Jones, and I love studying Matthew with all of you. I hope you're loving this study as much as I am. For me, it's helped me to understand exactly who my king is. It's given me a little more information each time. You know, if you remember a few weeks ago, I told you when I was here. That study in Matthew, the way we've done it, kind of reminded me of having to get a bird's-eye view of Matthew. Well, because of the sheer amount of volume, the volume of information we had this week, I feel like it would have looked more like this, the kind of view we needed to take. I mean, seriously, did you not feel like you needed to get on the space shuttle and get a space shuttle view? There was so much stuff to take in. There was so much that you couldn't just skip over anything. Everything had so much truth, and there's so much value, just like there was in the bird's eye view, as there, are, there as there is in a space shuttle view, the same amount. You know, we were able to watch Jesus on the earth deal with re- rejection. He dealt with sick people, and it was just all of this in twenty and twenty one. We saw him deal with with leaders that were counter bringing things to him and saying, "You, who's authority? And they were saying things to him. He was trying to present himself as the king. And all of this happened just in these two chapters. And we got to see how our king handled that. You know, when we're standing here on the earth, we look around us, and, and I don't know if you watch the news or read headlines, it's just chaotic. If you want to know just how crazy things are, just read the headlines. That's all you have to do. And we look at that and we think, this is so out of control. But when you get that view from way up there, from the space shuttle, and you look down at the earth, what do you see? You see God's beauty. You see just how organized he really is. You see how creative he really is. And, and you don't see all that other stuff that we're dealing with. You see his intelligence, his beauty, his creativity. You know, I read about an astronaut, an American astronaut. His name is James Irwin. He was the pilot for the Apollo 15 flight. And in 1971, he became the eighth man to ever walk on the face of the moon. And he was the first man to ever drive that little, that little rover, the, you know, the lunar rover, That kind of bounced around. He was the first guy to ever drive that. And during his three days on the surface of the moon, he had to perform several experiments. And he said one day, he was doing this experiment, and and because time was of an essence, you couldn't stay on that surface very long, he was was kind of in a hurry, and things were not happening right. He could not get this experiment to, to come together the way he needed it to. He said, so I finally did something I hadn't done in years. I prayed. And he said, that very moment, he said, I felt the presence of Jesus like I had never felt him ever in my life. He said, so much to the point that I would look over my shoulder because I felt like he was standing right there telling me what I needed to do as I put that experiment together. And he put it together just like that. And he got off the surface and back in the aircraft. And he said, that day where he encountered Jesus on the surface of the moon completely changed his life. He said when he retired from that, he had become a Christian when he was younger. But he said when he retired, he was no longer a bump on the on the log Christian. He said, I spent every day of my life making sure everyone knew about Jesus, my king. And he said, I wanted them to know all about him. He said, I travel around and I would tell people that Jesus walking on this earth is far more important than any man ever walking on the moon. Now, coming from a man who actually walked on the moon, that spoke volumes. And he said, that, he said that later on, as he would go and tell people how the character of his king was so much better than anything he'd ever seen in his life, he told them, Jesus is the answer to everything. And then 20 years later, almost the same month, 20 years later, after that mission where he encountered Jesus on the surface of the moon, he died from a massive heart attack. And his last words were, all I want to do is be faithful. That's all he wanted to do is he served his king. He encountered him, and it opened his eyes, and he never looked at anything the same. I feel like that's what we can do as we look at Matthew 20 and 21. We see Jesus, our king, walking through on the earth, and he's dealing with this rejection. He's dealing with hurt and sick people. He's dealing with sinful people that are hopeless and helpless. And from our space shuttle view, we get to see how he handles it. We get to look down and see exactly what he's made of, who he is, and what he is. And hopefully it makes us be more committed disciples of Jesus. Just like it did for James Irwin. I want to be able to say, all I want to do is be faithful. And I hope that you feel the same way. You know, Matthew 20 is a continuation of a discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples about what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven. this was a discussion that he had had when he had an encounter with a young wealthy man. Do you remember that from last week? And that guy could not quite understand how his external obedience wasn't quite enough. He didn't understand that his external obedience was not the problem. It was that his heart hadn't been changed. He wasn't keeping number one, number one in his heart. It was filled with his possessions and caring for it. And then Peter is quick in that part to to step up and say, hey, but we've given it all up for you. And I almost feel like Peter said, what's in it for us? And Jesus, he he was kind, he was gracious. He said, he told them what their rewards would be. But I think Jesus also sensed that there was maybe a little wrong motive in Peter's uh, service so he goes on and tells us the parable the laborers in the vineyard and that's what we're going to start today and it's going to address the issue of wrong motives when we're serving I want you to open your Bibles and I'm going to start at verse 1 in, verse t- in chapter 20 and I'm going to read all the way to 16 for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same, and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, bringing with the last, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so that the last will be first and the first last? See, this parable opens up with the master of a house going out and he's going to hire some men to work in his vineyard. And he has an agreed price and they come on a contract. They agree on a contract and they go out to work for one denarius, which, by the way, was kind of a common pay for one day's work. Later on at the third hour, which would have been 9 a.m., he found some more. Labor, uh, laborers, and without stipulating what he'd pay them, they agreed to go work in the vineyard. A little while later, there were some more. It happened again at the sixth hour, which is noon, the ninth hour is 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m., the eleventh hour, one hour before the end of the workday, he hired even more without stipulating what he'd pay them. So basically, there were two types of workers here there were the workers who required a contract and they would work for that, and there were those who would not. They did not have a contract, but they went out and worked anyway. Now, when the landowner gathered the workers together to pay them for their labor, he started with the men that only worked one hour, and he gave them one denarius. He proceeded to pay each man the same thing. I'm sure those guys at the end thinking, we worked all day, they're going, wow, we are going to take a load of money back today. We've worked 12 hours. But no. The master paid them the agreed price of one denarius." They were, of course, angry, and they started to grumble. I'm pretty sure I would have. Wouldn't have you? I know you people would have grumbled. <laughs> I know it. I would have. I would have said, wait, I've been here all day. But see, this parable is sometimes misinterpreted that it's, it's about our salvation. And we know it's not about salvation because we don't work for our salvation. Jesus has done that work for us. What he's talking about is our attitude in our service. How do we serve others? See, in this parable, there were workers who, because they didn't truly trust the fairness of the master, they required this agreement. They wanted to make sure they were going to get paid for what they were doing. And then there were those workers who, because they trusted the master and his goodness, they agreed to work for whatever he agreed to give them. Now, the workers with the contract were, of course, upset, but they really didn't have any grounds to argue, did they? They had no argument. They'd agreed to work for that one denarius. If they'd have trusted the goodness of the master, they would have known that he would have trusted them. He would have treated them fairly, and they may not, they may have even been given more. Who knows? He would have treated them as fair as he treated the others. Then after explaining, and then after this, he goes in and he tells the the um, he tells the uh, the disciples. This is what I'm saying. It matters what you're doing in here. This is where it's coming from. What are your motives? Paul addresses this in his letter in Philippians 4, 9, 19. Look on your verse sheet. He's saying here that we can trust in what we're being given. It's, our, it's God's best for us. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory in Christ Jesus. He knows what we need and he will give us what is best. He's infinitely fair and generous. And because of that, we can trust him that he's going to deal with us fairly. And he will give us what is best. It will be his best for us. Let's continue. I want to read Matthew 20, um, again, starting at 17. I'm going to read to verse 28. And Jesus was going into Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him she asked for something, and he said, What is it you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to set one on your right and one on your left in the kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. And then he looks at them and he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We are able. He said to them, "'You will drink my cup, but to set up my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom I have, who, who has been prepared, prepared by my Father.' And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, "'You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be that among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave.' even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve many and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, I don't think it can ever be said that Jesus didn't warn the disciples about his future demise. This is not the first time he's talked to them about what's going to happen. In fact, he's done it several times before. One of them, the first one is in Matthew 12, 40. It's on your verse sheet. It says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the man, son of man, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now I get it, that's a little subtle. But they should have known about Jonah, so that would have made some sense to them. But each time he brought it up, he added a little bit more and a little bit more. And the closer he got to Jerusalem, he even gave him more details. And this time, he laid it all out there for them. He said, I'm going to be, this, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death. He'd be delivered to the Gentiles who would mock, flog, and crucify him. And then he said, on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. But I think even though he was so specific this time, I still don't think they truly got it. I don't think they wanted to know exactly that, what, what was going to happen to him. And then after explaining this future, the mother of James and John, I think, is probably the first helicopter mom recorded in the New Testament. <laughs> Do you think that? I did. Here she comes. She wants to ask Jesus. She said, can my two precious boys, right here, James and John, I would like to have them seated next to you in the kingdom of heaven. Don't you know those boys are like, mom, stop. Oh, my boys would have been so embarrassed. But she didn't. She went straight to them and she said, I want them next to you. Specifically, I want them at your right hand and your left hand. See, I suspect she had heard about that discussion that Jesus was having back in Matthew about where the Son of Man would would sit on a glorious throne and there would be 12 thrones and the 12 disciples would sit on them and they would, would rule over the 12 tribes. Well, she wanted her boys right there. Right there. And I I think Jesus probably was thinking, wow, she is really brave. This brave woman. And he says, are you sure? He looks at these guys and he says, are you sure you're able to handle this cup that that you're going to have to drink? And they're like, yeah. There's no way they could have. Would you have said yes if you knew you were going to be flogged and mocked and crucified and all of this? There's no way they could have known when they said that. In fact... What happens, James is the first disciple that is martyred. John spends a lot of his life isolated, isolated on, a, on the island and suffering all by himself on the Isle of Patmos. I, I've been to Patmos. It's not like it used to be. It's beautiful now. I would suffer there all day long. But it was really <laughs> bad when he was there. He was by himself. He was isolated from anyone. But I think they were more concerned, concerned about their crown They weren't concerned about the cross. And Jesus wanted them to know the cross comes before the crown. Now, the other disciples, they were were a little bit mad, caused some dissension. I'm sure they were thinking, "Well, well, who do you think you are asking to be right next to Jesus? Or maybe even they were thinking, why didn't I think of that? You know, where's my mom up here? Why isn't she here trying to reserve me a throne? So, But whatever it was, they were angry about it, and they confronted him with it. And and Jesus becomes aware of this friction within the group, and he found this is a perfect opportunity, again, to teach something. He used her request to teach them that being a leader requires that you first become a humble servant. He said the world leaders, they lord their power over people, but that's not how we in the kingdom of God do it. And he said, "The key to greatness in the kingdom of God is not being fame. It's not fame or wealth or power. Instead, it's about humble service. It's about becoming a servant. Their goal, he said, is to be his goal. It's what he wanted them to do. It was they were to humbly serve, just like Jesus would do it. And in verse 28, is the first time that Jesus gives them the reason he must die on the cross. He tells them." I have to die because I came to serve you. I'm going to pay a ransom for your sin. I'm going to become the a sinless sacrifice for all, of the, all the sins. It would be the once and for all payment for sin. It's for our sin. And out of gratitude, that should cause us to want to humbly serve, just like Jesus did. You know, following this discussion, Jesus and his disciples, along with a crowd of people, make their way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it's a journey of, say, roughly 16 miles. We're not going to read through this today because for the sake of time. But um, it's a 16-mile journey, roughly, and they would have climbed about 3,000 feet. So this was not your afternoon stroll. This would have been about an eight- or nine-hour walk that would have been pretty rough. And on that journey, he comes across these two blind guys sitting on the side of the road. And as Jesus approaches, they yell out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They persisted, even though the crowd that was Jesus was like, quit, hush. We're busy. We're on the road. we got to get moving. But they, they persisted, and they said it again. And I think it's kind of interesting. This crowd is the same crowd probably that had watched him perform so many miracles. Wouldn't you just want to go, hey, Jesus, look, there are two more guys over here. Do it again and heal these. But they didn't. They hushed them. They wanted to keep moving. Let's keep moving. But not Jesus see he knew these guys even called him Messiah they called him son of David that's the word for Messiah for them it's interesting that they without their sight recognized Jesus as the Messiah but the religious leaders with 20-20 vision still wouldn't accept it but these two guys did and they would not let it go but what did Jesus do even when he had hours of travel ahead of him, even when he was probably tired, he had already been through so much, he had just told him again, I'm about to die on a cross. He didn't say no, he stopped, he made himself completely available, he asked them what they needed, and he met their needs. That's our humble and compassionate servant. And I think he was demonstrating that to his disciples and to that crowd. He wanted them to know that out of a grateful heart, we should honor our humble and compassionate king, and we strive to serve others. That's what he desires for us to do. If you said yes to Christ, it should be a natural outpouring of your heart that you desire to serve others. And when we do it with the right motives, it honors and glorifies our king. Now, Matthew 20 closes with Jesus and his posse moving on into Jerusalem. And Matthew 21 opens up the triumphal entry. And they're approaching Jerusalem, and Jesus is about to make that entry. This is the one time in Jesus' ministry where he didn't say, keep this quiet. He's about to make a public announcement. Here I am. Here I am. And until that time, he had told people, just don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. But all this is about to change. Let's look at Matthew 21. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, and untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks and sat on them. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Matthew 21 opens up and it's a setting, it's a short distance just outside of Jerusalem. And it's near the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The day is Sunday. It's a Sunday prior to the crucifixion that would occur later in the week. It's a very notable day. We call it Palm Sunday. And Jesus chooses these two unnamed disciples to go ahead of the crowd and to retrieve a donkey and its colt. And it would be tied up there waiting for them. Now he goes on to tell them that it would be a female donkey and her colt and that the owners would question the disciples and they would take the donkey and the colt. And then they were to respond with, the Lord needs them, and which would immediately they'd be given the permission. And Matthew records that this is a little curious exchange that goes on, is to fulfill prophecy. It's out of Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I would also like to suggest that our all-knowing king was not only fulfilling prophecy, I think he was demonstrating great wisdom as well. So he only knew, He knew not only that he would ride into Jerusalem to fulfill prophecy, but he foreknew that there would be a donkey there tied up waiting for him for his two disciples to come get them. He not only knew that, he knew exactly the words that would be exchanged and exactly how it would come down. Jesus was making another statement also by riding that donkey into Jerusalem. He was not customary for a king to ride into a city on a donkey. The kings of the world at that time, the earthly kings, would have ridden in on a horse or in a chariot, and there would have been all this fanfare, and, and not Jesus. He came into Jerusalem just like he came into uh, the earth. He came quietly and with humility. He came humble, riding on a donkey. And those looking on knew that a a donkey, a colt, was a symbol of peace. It didn't get past them, what he was doing. You know, I I read a quote. It was recorded in a book called The Minor Prophets. It says that the entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey would never have been done by a false messiah because a false messiah has their mind set on earthly glory and worldly greatness. I think they nailed it. Jesus was not the false messiah, he was the true messiah and he came in like no one else had ever come in. You know, in Mark 11:2 we learn a little bit more information about that cult that Matthew doesn't include in his gospel. Look at your verse sheet. It says go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter you will find a cult tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. No one has ever been on this colt. It has never been ridden. I don't know if any of you grew up on farms or ranches, but if you know anything about riding an unbroke colt, you know you don't just throw your cloak on it, hop on it, and ride off into the sunset. See, it doesn't say, though, in the Scripture that Jesus was thrown off several times, does it? Says that they, they just put the cloak on. He got on it and he rode into Jerusalem. See, I suggest that that shows Jesus' sovereignty over everything. He rode an unbroken colt into Jerusalem. Jesus, the Son of Man, has dominion over everything seen and everything unseen, and that includes the animals. Look at what's recorded in Job twelve seven through ten. But ask the beasts, and they will tell you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of all the sea will declare to you. Who among all these men does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Jesus is sovereign over everything seen and unseen, and he was sovereign over that unbroke colt that he rode and tamed it and rode it into Jerusalem. And as he entered Jerusalem, he was greeted with this huge crowd. This would have been a mixed crowd. There would have been people there, Jewish people there, to celebrate the, uh, the Passover. As well as it would have been some Gentiles as well. They probably heard about this guy that was doing miracles. and Everyone wanted to see what was going on. There could have possibly even been some of the Jewish leaders there watching what's going on. But in this mixed crowd, some was paving the road with their cloaks. And, and that's a sign of submission. Some were waving palm branches, which is a sign of victory. But they were expressing their hope that Jesus would be the one to lead them to victory over the Roman oppressors. You see, I don't think their actions and their words were really exactly what they they knew exactly what they were doing. You know, their words even proclaimed him to be the king. See, they shouted Hosanna to the Son of David." So there were some there that were shouting, Son of David, this is the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And by using that name, Son of David, they said, Jesus is our Messiah. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And some were saying, Hosanna, which means save us now. See, I don't think they fully comprehended the significance of this event. Some of them most likely did understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Some of them didn't. But I suspect they were all confused about what he had actually come to save them from. See, both their words and their actions bestowed honor on their new king, who was finally presenting himself publicly to them. But ultimately, ultimately most of those that were there, some of them maybe not, but most of them that were shouting Hosanna might have been in that crowd that was actually yelling, crucify him, just a few short days later. See, both the Jewish leaders who were so much more interested in, in their own interest, their power, they had robbed the truth from these, the Jewish people, the, Jew, the nation of Israel, and they'd replaced it with their man-made traditions, and Jesus knew this, and it grieved him so. You know, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, he addresses just how sad Jesus was. Look at that on your verse sheet. It says, And when he, Jesus, drew near to Jerusalem... And he saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus was grieved over the fact that so many of the people had closed their eyes to who he was and what his mission actually was for them. And many of those people caught up in that emotion, yelling, Hosanna. Maybe were some of those that will crucify him at the end of the week. Jesus knew that. And it grieved him so. How many times have I stood in church and I worshiped Jesus with my words. And it, oh, it just felt so good to worship him. And I turned around and left that place and I did not honor him with my words or my actions. I have grieved him so many times by doing that. See, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we should completely, both inside church and outside church, submit our lives completely to him. He's our wise and sovereign king. We're not just to praise him on Sunday mornings or Thursday mornings, but we're to honor him with our words and our actions everywhere we go. Let's continue reading. I'm going to start at verse 12 and read to verse 27. And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you not read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only be, do what has to be done to the fig tree, that I've done to the fig tree, but then if you say to the mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you receive if you have faith. When Jesus entered the temple, he was burning with righteous anger. Because the temple had once been a place of prayer, and now it had become this kind of corrupt commercialism that was being done inside there. And here's a little synopsis of what was going on. There were money changers in there, and they were telling people that when they came in to buy the pigeon for sacrifice, that they couldn't use money that had been circulated in in their society outside the temple. And so they're saying, you have to have temple money to buy your sacrificial animal. And of course, there was a small fee required to exchange that money. Seems a little shady to me. Kind of reminds me of a time I was in San Francisco on working a conference, and unexpectedly, I got this little bit of time to go sightseeing. And because I hadn't brought a camera, and we—this is way back before cell phones—we had bag phones. I, uh, I thought, you know. Disposable cameras. They were new on the scene. I'll grab a disposable camera. So I walked into this little shop and I saw them behind the counter and said, How much for those disposable cameras? And this shady little guy looked at me and he said, For you? They're $19.95. And I was like, Whoa, wow, I'm special. I'll take two of those. Thank you. And so I just paid up and left there with two new cameras of $40 cheaper. There were $40 less money in my pocket as I went across the street to get a couple more things at a grocery store. Guess what I found on the the counters? Disposable cameras for $9.95. Yeah, it was shady. Just like these shady money changers in the temple were telling people that they needed special money to buy these pigeons. And there would be a little exchange fee for that. And that wasn't bad enough. Guess what? They inflated the price of the pigeon that they would have to buy. It's like they were saying, for you, the pigeon is $19.95. <laughs> special price, the special temple price. And Jesus was fed up with it. He had already dealt with this earlier in his ministry, and here they were again doing the same thing. He says, this house, my house, is a house of prayer. And by the way, when he says, it's my house, he's saying, I'm God, and this is my house. And he says, you've taken my house and you've turned it into a den of robbers. So with righteous judgment, Jesus cleansed that temple because it was not being used as he intended for it to be used. It had never been meant to be filled with money changers. And then Jesus, I think is so cool, he proceeds to show him what it's supposed to be used for. He doesn't just throw the tables aside and race out of there. He's already told them it's supposed to be a place of prayer. Secondly, it says he healed the blind and the sick. Do you understand that at that time, blind and and the sick, and and those people were not allowed into the temple. He not only said, come in. He said, I'm going to meet your needs. And he healed them. And then he said, is my temple as a place of praise? Not just some mindless babble, but true unrestrained praise, just like coming from these children. And the Jewish leaders were indignant. They didn't like seeing those kids praising him. They were calling him the Messiah. You know, the word indignant comes from a verb that means to be stirred up, and that's exactly what they were. They just kept getting more stirred up. And they were, so, they were stirred up to the point they said, Jesus, throw those kids out of here. Jesus didn't do that, of course. I love how he used Scripture to address this. He uses Psalm 8-2, which is on your verse sheet. He says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and avenger. Out of the mouth of babies, there would be praise. He also displayed righteous anger as he cursed the fig tree. This is a very curious little portion of scripture, I think. When I first read it, I just kind of, mm, what exactly is going on here? It helps us to understand these verses better, though, if we know that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. And it makes even more sense if you know the peril of the bar- barren fig tree, which is recorded in Gospel of, Ma- of Luke. And that parable goes that a fig tree is found in a certain garden, and it's not producing fruit. So the owner says, go cut it down. And the gardener says, no, 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 let's leave it here. I'm going to till up around it, put a little manure on it, fertilize it. And if it doesn't produce in the next season, then we'll take it down. Well, see, now we jump ahead... And here's Jesus cursing a fig tree. See, so he's cursing the fig tree because he knows the fruit of the fig tree always appears before the leaves. So when he gets to this fig, this fig tree, there are all these leaves on it, but there are no fig tree or figs on its branches. It should be producing fruit by now, and it wasn't. Now remember I said the the, the fig tree represents the nation of Israel? See, like this fig tree had leaves, but no no figs, no fruit on it. Israel had all this show of religion, but there was no fruit to show for it. And in the parable of the barren fig tree that came out of Luke, the gardener was given more time to cultivate that fig tree, but now the time is up. It's come to that second season, that next season, and it's not producing. And Jesus, with complete authority, causes it to wither. It's like he just cut it down. And then he returns back to that temple, and guess what? He is immediately hit again with questions about his authority. Now, I can say one thing about the Jewish leaders. They were persistent if they were anything. You'd think by now they'd learned that you can't debate Jesus, the Son of God. But they hadn't learned this yet. They were still asking him, where is your authority coming from? Where, you get off, where do you get off coming in our temple and throwing our money changers out? So he deals with them brilliantly, I think. He, asks, he says, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. He says, by whose authority did John baptize? By God's authority or man's authority? Brilliant question. It was a brilliant question. He had backed them into this corner, because if they answered that by God's authority, then he would say, well, why haven't you accepted his message then? Why are you rejecting it? And if they answered with man's authority, then the crowd was going to be angered, because that crowd believed that, that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. He had so brilliantly put him in this pickle. What are they going to do? And you could just see them, there wringing their hands. Why are we going to answer this? And in true spineless form, they went neutral. They said, oh, we don't know the answer to that one. And Jesus said, well, then I'm not answering your question either. See, Jesus, our judge, performed two great acts of judgment. He cleansed the temple of the money changers, and he cursed a fig tree that immediately withered and died. Both these acts revealed great hypocrisy of Israel. And then he brilliantly debated the religious leaders on his authority. He was pointing out to his disciples that he's saying that he is their judge, and if he sees anything in them that would keep them from living this fruit-filled life, he can and he will, with total authority, discipline them as needed to make them fruitful again. Look at Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 on your verse sheet. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves and is a father, the son, in whom he delights. See, our righteous and authoritative king loves us so much that he disciplines us. And he does it so that we can be disciples who produce good fruit. A good And good fruit is the byproduct of a, a Christian life that is... A well-cultivated spiritual life. It's filled with faith-growing experiences. And guess what? It's filled with discipline. Discipline from our king. Let's finish it up. Finish up, And we're going to read the last two parables of Matthew 21. I'm going to start at verse 28 and read to the end. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said, them, truly I say to you, tax collectors and the prostitutes go to the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed one and stoned the other. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The religious leaders said, Well, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking to them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. In the last two parables, the sons, Jesus presents a situation in which one son is asked to work in the vineyard. And he says no. But later he changes his mind and he goes to work. The other son is asked to go to work in the vineyard. and He says, Yeah. I'll go. And he never does it. Then Jesus poses a question for the Jewish leaders which of these sons did the father, did what the father asked? And the answer was obvious. The Jewish leader said the first son. He did what the father wanted him to. See, again, Jesus had painted him right back into that corner. And then he applied it to the religious leaders. You know, some of them had heard the message of John the Baptist, but it had not led them to true repentance. They were like that second son who said yes, but they never followed through. Jesus goes on to say, on the other hand, the sinners and the outcasts, the the tax collectors and the prostitutes who first maybe were skeptical a little bit, they eventually received that message and they followed through. They accepted Christ. And he said they would enter the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders, on the other hand, had rejected Jesus, and they would not. And that could not have been easy for them to hear, to hear that sinners and outcasts were going to be in the kingdom, but they would not. Sadly enough, that didn't lead them still to repentance. They continued to fight against it. You know, in the next parable, the parable of the tenants, some of your translations call it the parable of the uh, landowner, Jesus continues this narrative about the rejection of his message and by the nation of Israel. He uses a, a vineyard again. The vineyard, of course, represents the nation of Israel like before. The owner is God who had carefully prepared Israel to be uh, for his futri- fruitful vineyard, and then he turned the care of the vineyard over to the religious leaders, who misused it and had badly treated all of God's prophets. Ultimately, they even killed his son Jesus. But when asked what they should have, what should happen to the unfaithful t- tenants, they replied, "Because I don't think they quite got they had been painted in a corner yet." They replied, "Well, you need to throw them out. They need to be destroyed." And give it to someone who will produce fruit. Well, That's what he was going to do. See, Jesus, our merciful and just Savior, is telling him that the kingdom of heaven would be taken from them for a while. And given to those who would produce fruit. It would be given to those who would receive Jesus and his message. And if you're in Christ, you're one of those. You're one of those to which the kingdom of heaven has been given. He isn't saying now that the kingdom of heaven has been taken away from the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, totally. He's saying it's been taken away for a a time, and that in a future time, there would be a time when Israel would again come, turn, and they would repent, and they would accept Jesus as their Savior, and it would be returned to them in mercy. Now, that's bad news for that generation. But it's really good news for all of us because our just and merciful Savior, our King, he's made a way for all of us to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and that's fabulous news. You know, I think it's funny that it says that the Jewish leaders, upon hearing these two parables, at the end they said they finally perceived that Jesus was talking about them. Really? (laughs) The two blind guys in the middle of nowhere got it. These guys didn't get it. But instead of doing what they should have done at that point, receiving that message then and allowing it to lead them to repentance, they let their pride take the, get the best of them still. And they were so angered, they wanted to have Jesus arrested immediately. But guess what? They were also spineless they didn't want that crowd to turn on them either so they didn't have him arrested they just let it go and we'll see more what's going to happen it's going to happen pretty quick as we go into 22 we covered a whole lot of information this week a whole lot of really important information this week with the space shuttle view and i hope that, that as you did it you got to be more familiar with your king What is he really like? You know, I read a quote by a Soviet cosmonaut who on April 12, 1961, became the very first man to ever orbit planet Earth. And upon returning, he was quoted as saying, I saw for the first time the Earth's shape. He said, I could easily see from there the continents... The islands, the great rivers, the folds in the terrain, the large bodies of water, the horizon that's dark blue, that smoothly fades into the dark. He said, there, He finishes by saying there was only one feeling I can express this with. Joy. He said it gave him great joy to see that. My prayer is that as you took your spatial view of Matthew 20 and 21 and saw your Savior, you saw your King this week, I hope that you were able to see that he's fair and generous. He's humble. He's compassionate. He's wise. He's sovereign. He's righteous. He's authoritative. He's just and he's merciful. He's all of those things. All of which I hope brings you great joy. Great joy as you honor your king by serving him with your words and your actions. Please pray with me. Father, we... uh, Wow, we love you. We love your plan. It is amazing the plan you set forth. And Jesus, we thank you for following that plan to the T. We want to honor you with our lives. We want to be what you want us to be. Father, I pray that you give us what we need each day so we can do that. Pray that all these words would be planted in our heart. And Lord, as we strive to honor you and serve others, that we would do it with excellence and we would do it in a way that honors and glorifies you. We love you. We love your word. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen.